You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 26, 1-29. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the men called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out thirty pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. On the first of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. He replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit, of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, peace be with you. So good to see you all this evening, all day. We've been celebrating uh, just Black church uh, history for Black History Month, reflecting on how the Lord brought a particular part of the body of Christ through. Oftentimes when we talk about the persecuted church, 
we failed to talk about uh, the black church and the church that uh, was originally called the Invisible Institution as they gathered on plantations and in fields um, out of their master's eye in order to worship the Lord in secret. And so uh, we're in a neighborhood where there is uh, the majority uh, African-Americans in this community. And so we want to continue to make sure that our African-American brothers and sisters uh, are seen and heard and have times throughout the year uh, where they can celebrate um, what the Lord has done in their community's life. So thank you all for uh, participating. Uh, after the sermon, we have two great songs and tributes that will uh that is to come. So uh, hold tight. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive right into today's text. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness towards us. I thank you that you are a God who keeps and who preserves, who protects, who strengthens, who illuminates, and who gives us power to go on. I pray, Father God, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we finished up walking through some parables in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, which all show Jesus as the Son of Man. And the son of God who came, who will come um, in judgment in his second return. In an ironic twist, Matthew is now going to show us that the son of God and the son of man must first be judged. Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 is holy ground. It's sacred ground. It is a detailed and intimate look at Jesus preparing for his death. Charles Spurgeon, when talking about uh, this passage, has this to say. Here we come to the holies of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. And I love what Spurgeon says here as he meditates on chapter 26 and 27, the last uh, few moments and snapshots and stories of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. He says, this is holy ground. And when you stand on holy ground, metaphorically speaking, uh, you should take off your shoes. Today, I want to look at these two powerful stories of Matthew 26. One of the story is known as the anointing at Bethany. And the other story is known as the, the Lord's Supper. And what I want us to do quickly is look at three things that these powerful stories have in common. And the first that we're going to see, themes that we will see they have in common, is that both stories are historic. Both stories are historic. The second is that both stories show an intimate portrayal of, of sinners. 
Both stories are, are filled with a, a picture of these characters who are sinners. And then lastly, we're going to look at both stories and how they have a greater meaning. Both stories and how they have a greater meaning. And the big takeaway, the main point that I want you to see is this, is that all characters in this story, every single person except for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, desperately needed the cross of Christ. And then I want to bring that to you and let you know that every single character in this room, every single person in this room desperately needs the cross of Christ. So quickly, I want to show you this point that both stories are historic. And when I say historic, what I mean is that, is that Jesus intended both of these stories to be remembered and preached and proclaimed from the time that they happened throughout all of history. In the first story, we see a woman um, who anoints Jesus's head with expensive perfume. Now, in John chapter 12, we see the same story of this woman, and this woman is uh, named Mary. And in John chapter 12, this woman breaks an alabaster jar, and she pours nard, which is an expensive oil that would have been from northern India, um, over the head of Jesus to anoint him as well as on his feet, and she wipes his feet off with her hair. This is an extravagant, faith-filled, worshipful act. And the reason that this woman did this in this text, verse 12 says, was because she was preparing Jesus's body for burial. Now, you have to understand back then, a Jewish person's body was anointed for their burial after they had died. But here, this woman is going to anoint Jesus for his death before he dies. And she's going to anoint him not knowing that the reason the Holy Spirit led her to anoint him is because this will be the anointing of his body. This will be the preparation for his burial. See, this passage is a passage that is all about the death of Jesus and Jesus preparing himself to carry the cross Four times in this passage does Jesus predict his death. In verse 2, he says, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then he goes on again in verse 18 and predicts his death. And he goes on two more times in uh, these short few verses to predict his death. Jesus is preparing to die. But notice what he says in verse 13. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed 
in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. Interesting phraseology that Jesus puts in verse 13. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. Now, normally in Matthew, when Jesus talks about the gospel, he's speaking about the message of the kingdom of God, life with God under his reign, under his rule. But here it appears that the gospel of Jesus is not just a message, but the gospel of Jesus is the very life of Jesus. It's the very storying of Jesus. It's what Jesus did and experience. It is part of the good news. So Jesus says, when this story is told, when this gospel is preached and proclaimed, when, when, I, when it's told that I was preparing myself for the cross, this woman's story will be told because of what she has done. What we're reading is a deeply historic thing. But the same can be said for the second story, which is the Lord's Supper. Throughout the Gospels, especially in Mark and Luke, we see that both Gospel writers add a a part in the Lord's Supper that Jesus says, uh, as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of me. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Lord's Supper was to be a meal that was taken in remembrance of Jesus, a meal that we uh, used to, to remember what he had done. And what's fascinating about the Lord's Supper is what Jesus did. He tells his disciples to go and to prepare uh, for the Lord's Supper. And this would have happened on Thursday, typically uh, for Passover. This would have happened on Thursday. Typically, Passover happened on Friday. And Jesus takes the disciples and he takes a meal that was common to the Jewish people and he, he twists it, he turns it into what we as Christians now celebrate as the Lord's Supper. The Passover was an event that God told Israel to practice yearly during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was their most important festival, and it was the most important redemptive act in their history. Thousands and thousands of people every year around the same time would come into Jerusalem to celebrate this meal because this meal reminded them of what God did to deliver them from Egypt and how God raised up Pharaoh and how God sent 10 plagues and how The 10th plague was a a plague in which God killed the firstborn child of every Egyptian. But the Israelites, they didn't lose their firstborn child. If they killed a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, the death angel would pass over their homes. This was a big event. And Jesus, in the midst of them celebrating what would have been a Jewish holiday, the Passover, he's going to turn it into a meal that will be given to remind them of what he would do for them on the cross. And he will say, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you so that there would be a new covenant. But not only... Do both stories have in common that they're supposed to be remembered as incredible historic events? Both stories 
have something else in common. Secondly, they have in common um, sinners. Each character in this text has fallen short of the glory of God, and they desperately need Jesus to go to the cross. In fact, in verse 3 through verse 5, we see the high rollers, the religious leaders, the most known in Israel, all conspire to arrest Jesus, verse 4 says, and in a treacherous way, they conspire to kill him. These are supposed to be the ones in Israel who walk closely with God, who teach the law of God, who were supposed to help the Israelites to look forward to the coming Messiah, to know the signs of when he was coming. And yet they all conspire in a treacherous way to have Jesus, the Son of God, killed. Their hearts are far from God, though their lips proclaim him. But not only are they sinners, every single character in here reminds us of of human frailty and fragility and and brokenness. We even see this with Simon the leper. Oh, innocent Simon the leper who is opening up his home so that people can come and spend time with Jesus. On this text, it doesn't say that Simon was in sin. But Simon's nickname that he got because he once had leprosy points us to the fact that we are under the curse of Adam and that we live in a fallen world. Simon the leper received his nickname because he was once plagued with leprosy, but more than likely he met Jesus and Jesus healed him of that leprosy. And leprosy should remind us that something is wrong with the world. And it should remind us that the world is under a curse ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Now, Simon the leper did not have leprosy because he sinned in a particular way. We can't prove that. Illnesses and and sicknesses can't necessarily be traced to a particular sin, though uh, sometimes we sow uh, what we reap. If we do something foolish, we may be inflicted with the results of that sin. But Simon's name reminds us of the brokenness of this world. Not only that, but even this woman who breaks the alabaster box and who anoints Jesus's hair as she acknowledges his king, kings got anointed. And as she anoints his hair and his feet with her hair, as she prepares his body for burial, this woman too is a sinner. Pastor Jamal, I don't see that in the text. How, how How do you come to that conclusion? I come to that conclusion because this woman's act of adoration and act of worship was not because she was doing it to earn salvation from Jesus, but she was doing it because she had experienced the salvation of Jesus. She had experienced the resurrection of Lazarus. She had experienced the forgiveness of of her own sins. So she was acting out of homage and adoration and, and genuine worship from the heart because she knew that she was a sinner. 
and that she found grace in Jesus. Not only was this woman a sinner, but also we see in this text that Judas Iscariot is a sinner. And y'all say, well, pastor, I know that because there's a repulsion in my heart every time I hear the name Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot. It's like Mephasa from Lion King, Mephasa, ooh. It's like saying Judas Iscariot, right? He was a sinner. We all know he was a sinner. He betrayed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. In fact, in his text, we see that the Bible says that as this woman is pouring out perfume on the body of Jesus, that the disciples, they are indignant and they say, why this waste, they ask. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. But John chapter 12 tells us that it was Judas who was stirring up the disciples with this complaint. Because Judas was greedy. Judas was, was hungry for money and for wealth. In John chapter 12, we read that John says that Judas was skimming off the top. He was the treasurer for the disciples, for Jesus, Inc., and he was stealing from Jesus's ministry collection. But you know, it's easy for us to see Judas and have repulsion in our heart. But the truth is, we all are Judas. Often when we read stories like this, we try to place ourselves in the story and we're the hero. We're the disciples. But this text reminds us that every single character in this story needs Jesus. Because not only did Judas betray Jesus, but the Bible says each and every one of the disciples would betray Jesus. We go on and we read a few verses later. In verse 20, it says, when evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now listen to this. Verse 22, deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in a bowl, he will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Verse 25, Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, rabbi. And Jesus responded, and he said, you have said it. But what's fascinating is, is if we look down to verse 31, Jesus says this to his disciples. Then Jesus said to them, tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And the very next pericope is Jesus talking to Peter and telling Peter how he will deny him three times. And Peter with confidence says, surely all these other disciples, they will be betray you, but not me, Lord. Judas was not the only one who betrayed Jesus. All of his disciples betrayed him. <laughs> After seeing his miracles, 
They betrayed him after seeing him raise up Lazarus from the dead, raise up the widow of Nan from the dead, raise up the young woman who, who died by saying, Telethakum, a little girl, arise. They betrayed him after seeing him open blind eyes and, and deaf ears. They betrayed him. After seeing him heal leper skin, they betrayed him. And here's the point of the text. The point of the text is that every single person needs Jesus. None of us are heroes. Only he is sinless. Only he is perfect. We all need the cross. We all need the cross. Some of us in here, we need the cross because we're self-righteous, like the religious leaders. We see everybody else's sin but our own. Everybody else is the problem. While others of us, we need the cross because we, we have, 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 are living a, a lifestyle in complete contradiction to God and, and not obeying any of his commands. We all need the gospel. Growing up in a black church, one thing I used to love as a young boy is every Sunday my pastor would make what he called a beeline to the cross. He was quoting Charles Spurgeon there. At every point in the sermon, it's as if the sermon would shift because he would take the sermon and whatever the text was, he would, he would turn it to show us how we all needed the cross. And he would begin to wax eloquent about the cross of Jesus. I grew up hearing some great faithful black preachers take me to the cross and remind me that it's at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart was rolled away. It is there by faith that I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. I grew up hearing them say, at the cross, at the cross. And Jesus, in order to go to the cross, he had to go up the Via Della Rosa, which is the road of sorrow. And before he went to the cross, they, they whipped him with 39 whips, saved one. They would talk about how he was raised high and dropped low and stretched wide and how he was pierced with a, with a sword in his side. They would talk about how he said, I thirst and was given something to drink at the cross. They would talk about how when Jesus was on the cross in the heat of the day, how the S-U-N refused to shine because the S-O-N was shining and two suns couldn't shine at the same time. We talk about how on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God, the cross. The cross was where man was at his worst, but as always, God was at his best, the cross. The cross is where God was reconciling Man back to himself, fixing what Adam and Eve had broken, the cross. The cross is where Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament sacrifices of pigeons and, and goats and, and lambs. And, and where the words of John the Baptist came true, look, there goes the Lamb of God who, who came to take away the sins of the world, the cross. The cross is the place that we must never run from. 
that we must never get too big for. The cross is the place of redemption and renewal and and restoration. The cross is the place where we find out that Jesus is our lawyer interceding on our behalf, that Jesus is our ransom, our propitiation, that Jesus took on God's wrath, the wrath that we deserve so that we could be forgiven of sin and and reconciled back to the heart of the Father, the cross. And every single person needs the cross. I love what happens in verse 9. It says, when the disciples saw it, speaking of Mary's act of worship, they were indignant and they said, why this waste, they asked. And then it goes on to say, this might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. And Jesus' response essentially is, the poor will be with you always, but I will not. And Jesus' point is not that we should not care about the poor because the poor will always be around. No, Jesus' point is is that he won't be around much longer. But Jesus' statement reminds us of just how broken this world is. The poverty that is in this world reminds us of sin. Poverty reminds us of, of, of sickness. Poverty reminds us of injustice. The writer of Proverbs says this about the poor. It says, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. Part of the reason Jesus came was to usher in a a new kingdom, a better kingdom that one day will be fully realized and there will be no more sickness, no more leprosy, and no more poverty as all things will be made new. Not only does both stories give us a, a picture of something that's historic, and not only does both stories give us a a portrayal of sinners, but both stories lastly point us to a greater meaning. The woman with the alabaster box, the ultimate meaning in this text should remind us of the parable that Jesus told about the man who finds a field, a treasure in a field. And upon stumbling upon this treasure in the field, he realizes that this treasure is worth more than everything that he has. So he goes and he buries the treasure and he sells all that he has to buy the field. This woman breaking an alabaster box and pouring it over Jesus' head, which was a small fortune, is meant to show us that the person who finds Jesus has found something more valuable than silver and gold. That the person who has found Jesus has found the greatest treasure. That the person who has found Jesus has has found and has the ultimate fulfillment 
They found peace. They found love. They found joy. They found forgiveness. They found identity. They found family. And that because they have found everything in Jesus, they can give everything to Jesus without fear of missing out. My grandmother used to say, boy, I never regret anything I've given to Jesus. She used to always tell me, boy, you know what? You can never outgive God. That's the type of God we serve. He is worth our allegiance. He is worth our bodies. He is worth our minds. He is worth our money. He is worth our voices, our praise. He is worth it all. The second greater meaning is a meal that we take every week called the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes this meal And as I said, he transforms it from Passover to a meal that is about the new covenant. And this meal is going to have a a greater meaning as it's going to point us back to the promise that God gave Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, the prophet Jeremiah gives a promise to Israel who is tired and and worn out, who is um, in captivity because of their rebellion against God and facing uh, impending captivity. And Jeremiah says that the day is coming where God will give you a new heart. He will replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He will write his words upon your heart and he will give you a new covenant and you will be his people and he will be your God. And he will save you from all of your iniquity and sin. And this is the moment where God is fulfilling this promise. It is around the table with the disciples that God is ushering in a new promise, a better covenant than the law. Because Israel constantly failed to keep the law. God is ushering in a better promise, a better covenant through Jesus Christ who will perfectly keep the law on Israel's behalf so that those who look to Jesus by faith will be forgiven of being lawbreakers and Jesus will die on the cross as the ultimate lawbreaker. And it is during this supper that Jesus takes a cup Most likely, this is the third cup of the Passover meal, which is called the the cup of redemption. During the cup of redemption, they would often quote Exodus uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 6, which talks about how God would save his people with an outstretched arm. And Jesus, at this moment, begins to quote Exodus 6, 6, and he says this to his disciples. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, he blessed it and broke it. He gave it to the disciples. He said, take and eat it. This is my body. He broke it. And this would have pointed his disciples back to Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant who would be despised and rejected. 
who's, who would receive the transgressions of his people upon his shoulders, who would receive stripes and who Isaiah said, it is by his stripes you are healed. This bread that we take every week reminds us of the broken body of Jesus and it reminds us that through his brokenness, we are made whole. Through his brokenness, our sins are forgiven. Through his brokenness, we have power over sin and death. Through his brokenness and through his body, we have healing from the trauma of yesterday's past. Through his broken body, we experience life. One day, Jesus was preaching and he said, I I am the bread of life. Whoever eats from me will never hunger again. And then verse 27 says, he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we we drink the communion juice or or wine, we remind ourselves that we are in a covenant with Jesus. And this points us back all the way to the book of Genesis where man first sinned. And the Bible says that God, he killed an animal and covered Adam's and Eve's naked bodies. Because whenever sin is present, because God is just, Someone has to pay for that sin in order for God to remain just. God, who is perfect and holy, cannot look upon injustice and embrace it and let it go. A perfectly holy God must pay. Someone must pay for the sin that is committed. The Bible says that Jesus pays for the infinite amount of sins that we commit. And his blood was shed to remind us, just as the blood was put on the doorposts of the Israelites and the death angel passed over them, that as we apply the blood of Jesus to our hearts by faith, through grace, the death angel passes over us, we enter into eternal life. We are set free from the penalty of sin, which is death. So every week we take this meal and we do three things. The first thing we do is we remember. We remember what Christ has done for us. The second thing we do is we examine. We look at our lives and the lives we are living and we ask ourselves, am I walking Worthy of the gospel of Jesus? Am I like this woman pouring out my soul to God, not for love, but from love, remembering what he saved me from? Am I offering forgiveness to those who have sinned against me? knowing that I am called to forgive others just as Christ has forgiven me. And then finally, we take this meal and we look forward. 
We look forward to to the coming kingdom. Verse 29, but I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's powerful. Jesus says, listen, I'm I'm fasting from wine until until you make it to heaven. (laughs) He says, I'm going to hold off and have an extended period of Lent (laughs) until you make it safely home. And every time we take communion every week, we remind ourselves of how much Jesus loved us. And how much he loves us. He loved us enough to give his life. And how much the Father loves us. There is no greater love than for a man who will give his life for a friend. Romans chapter 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of God. If he was willing to give us his best, his son, will he not give us all things? Will he not put food on the table? Will he not raise up that cloud of of depression? Will he not uh, give you a, a, a people and a family to comfort you when you are in need? Will he not provide your your every need? Will he not give you joy in the midst of sorrow? And every week we take this meal called communion together. We break bread. We drink wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. In front of your seats, there's uh, little cups. You can pause and take communion now by taking that cup. The wafer represents the body of Jesus. Listen, it was broken for you. 2,000 years ago, Jesus on the cross had you in mind. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for you. It's a reminder of God's love for you. Let's stand to our feet and let's continue to worship this holy God. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.